Greetings, brave adventurers and devious dungeon masters. Welcome back to the Knights and Nerds podcast. This is Tim, your dungeon master, and I want to say thank you very much for listening to this. Today's episode, we are back with another campaign planning episode. So if you are listening to this and you are really just wanting to listen to the campaign episodes, skip over this one. We've got a new campaign episode coming out on Wednesday, so not much longer to wait. But in this, I'll be discussing some things that happened in the last couple of episodes as well as what I'm planning. So we may, probably will be getting into potential spoilers. So if you don't want to know what I'm planning, just skip over this episode and rejoin us on Wednesday. Before we get right into it, I do want to say a couple of quick things. Uh, Still on our march towards 15 five-star ratings on iTunes. I didn't know this before, but apparently the country that you're leaving a review in, you can only see reviews based on other users of the country that you're in. So being in Canada, I can only see reviews from other Canadian users. And I know that some friends uh, of mine from uh, south of the border, being the United States, have left some, kindly left some very gracious reviews. And the only reason I was able to find those was because I opened the iTunes store URL and changed the little country designation portion of the URL to something else. So uh, right now I'm only seeing reviews in in Canada. We're up to nine, which is good. Hoping to make it to 15 so we can do that Thanos bonus episode. Maybe in time for Avengers Infinity War to come out on Blu-ray on the 14th. Who knows? Who knows if we'll make it? The suspense is nearly unbearable. And because this episode is directed to my fellow Dungeon Masters, you glorious, ingenious bastards, I want to say, as I've said a couple times before, there is a special Dungeon Master-only group on the Knights and Nerds Facebook page. If you want to join, you can help me uh, plan out a few things. We'll get to that in a little bit, but I'm going to pose a question to the group probably this week uh, or early next week about um, some things to throw at the characters in the sort of upcoming chapter of this campaign here. I want to get everyone's input. So if you want to help me plan out some stuff, go to the Knights and Nerds Facebook page, and there is a Dungeon Masters only group. And that group will be especially useful once I, in an upcoming campaign planning episode, reveal the big twists. Uh, I don't know when exactly I'm going to do it, Hopefully sooner rather than later, because the whole point of these things is to kind of demonstrate how I'm trying to get the players to, basically to this to this endpoint that I'm that I'm planning. Like I have this I have this reveal that I want to do, and the question will be: Will I be able to get to do it, or will I have to adjust based on what the players do? And once I reveal the final twists in detail that Dungeon Master group on Facebook will be a really good place for everyone to discuss uh, how things are going and whether or not I'll be able to and whether or not I'll be able to accomplish what what I would like. And I can hear the objections already. You know, it's not your story. It's the player's story. It's their character's story. I'm well aware that it is the character's story and really that is that is paramount. So if they approach things in such a way that cause me to change uh, what I'm planning, then that's what I'll have to do. But uh, I just envision this twist, this surprise coming off at a very crucial moment. Let me know if you have any theories. I guarantee, I guarantee nobody will guess it. 
I actually, I can't guarantee that because there was a pretty big, <laughs> there's actually a really big clue that was dropped in one of the episodes between this episode and the previous campaign planning episode. I won't say what it is, but there was a massive clue in there and I didn't even realize that I, that I made it. So I'll be, I'll be interested to see if anyone picks up on it. Okay, so let's talk about what's happened. If you listened to the last campaign planning episode, you'll know that I thought and predicted that the players would side with Martin, the cloak, the head of the Thieves Guild, the head of the Nimble Knaves. And I was right about that. Martin the Cloak, by the way, based loosely on a real-life master thief named Adam Worth. If you haven't read the book, The Napoleon of Crime, do so immediately. It is an incredible book. I can't recommend it highly enough. So maybe somebody thought like, hmm, it sounds like Adam Worth. Yeah, he's a real life master thief, but insisted on doing all of his work nonviolently, which which I thought was super interesting. Anyways, go out and read the book, The Napoleon of Crime. It's really, really fascinating. Anyways, so the players did side with Martin, as I thought. And what I also said was that I wanted to give the players uh, two conflicting choices, each with different outcomes and long-term consequences. I did want them to cross paths with Thorn so that he could try to win them to his side. But that really didn't naturally come up, so I didn't really force that confrontation. The players sort of approach things from an arm's length. They let Owen uh, sort of take the lead on uh, on crossing paths with Thorn, and basically chose not to not to interact with them because Maybe because they had already made the choice that they would side with Martin no matter what. And perhaps it was also because of, you know, after Owen's warnings, the things that Owen said about Thorn made him sound really unstable and dangerous. So uh, maybe I sort of shot myself in the foot in that regard. Why would the players want to work with someone who's so violent and unpredictable? I guess that's a lesson to me, you know, sort of make things less clear-cut. I really made Martin seem very reasonable, and I kind of, you know, I that's what I wanted. I didn't want Martin to be a really, really bad antagonist for them. Just a sort of a, a momentary antagonist, so to speak. But after saying all those things about Thorne, uh, I really, in hindsight, I really don't think there was any way they would have sided with him, even if he was promising them uh, a lot of material gain. So I'd also said that they would uh, that I anticipated uh, that they would take Thorn out of the picture by sort of letting him being his own undoing. And of course, I was wrong about that because they didn't really interact with him at all, which is which is fine. They did do their best to save Owen. Um, and by the end of the episode, they uh, by the end of episode six, they pretty much did. And that is definitely something that I'm going to use against them. I'll talk about that later in this episode. First, let's talk about that encounter, that fight in episode six. I thought the players approached that really well. Um, they didn't go headlong into battle. I don't know why. I just assumed that. I don't know if I thought that they would, but considering that they don't have a frontline, you know, high armor class, high hit point type of character in the group, uh, I think they approached it as best that they could. The fog cloud, I thought, worked really well. Uh, it put the dragonborn, it put their enemies immediately on the defensive. And... Basically, they were just playing for time. They knew that they didn't have to beat them. They just had to 
give Martin enough time to get Thorne away from the fight. So what else did I think was good about the fight? Well, in the last campaign planning episode, I had said that in terms of executing an encounter, you want to change the circumstances of the fight, of the combat, every round or so. If not every round, then every other round, you want to change something about the encounter. If the circumstances stay the same from start to finish, there's really nothing that the players have to do other than attack. Like There's really no critical thinking that they have to do to, to overcome the circumstances of the fight. So to that end, I did try to keep things changing, more or less. Um, the fog cloud uh, was dispelled, which, you know, that would be a realistic thing to have happen. Uh, I said that the bard that was in league with Thorn dispelled it, even though I don't know offhand if dispel magic is a bard spell, but probably something that a team of thieves would have, like a dispel magic scroll. Because why wouldn't a team of thieves come prepared? You know, perhaps they knew that the driver of that armored carriage was a spellcaster and they wanted to have that base covered. And having the death dogs in the fight, I thought was a lot of fun. Uh, I know that I said Spruce would definitely get poisoned. I think actually last episode, I definitely guaranteed that he would die. I was wrong about that. Of course, I was being uh, uh, facetious, but he did get poisoned, which I thought was neat. Uh, And having the death dog get enlarged, you know, didn't really have a material impact on the fight, but it certainly gave the the players something more to focus on. It was more of a threat all of a sudden than it was a moment earlier, you know? And I thought Faye's use of, I think it was minor illusion to do a dog whistle. I thought that was extremely clever. I really liked that a whole lot. Now let's talk about what could have been better. I thought maybe the largest weak point of that encounter was that Vanna, the ranger, and Fiance, they were really not challenged. Uh, They were sort of up on a roof, making ranged attacks. Uh, So I could have challenged them more. Maybe the spellcaster, the driver of the armored carriage, uh, directs sort of an area of effect spell at them, or maybe a few of the dragonborn shot some arrows at them. Even though they really weren't challenged at all, that's kind of to be expected. I mean, it's it's pretty realistic and understandable that the Dragonborn were more concerned with the threats that were in front of them. They were engaged in, in a melee fight. Uh, so that's what they were focused on. For a few of the party members to keep their distance was a, a tactical decision on their part, and it paid off. Um, but in future encounters, I think Faye and Vanna will probably try the same thing Vanna's preferred fighting style, of course, being archery. Uh, so I think I'll try to anticipate that when I'm planning encounters from now on to to include something that will challenge ranged combatants. So if Faye and Vanna want to continue fighting at a distance, I'll include some enemies in the fight that can and should target them. So with the encounter one with Thorn saved, the players now have an ally. They have Martin as an ally, and they did manage to save Owen's life. So that is... I think that I think they wound up with as good a result as they could expect. Also, in episode six, I did decide to include Agarand uh, in the session. He just sort of walked by. The players overheard him talking about some things, so that was some foreshadowing. I wanted to include him and the sorcerer Arzax for a few sessions. They hadn't really 
dealt with him. And I want to keep the fact that Agaran and his sorcerer are the main enemies not far from the front of their minds. They, they've been dealing with the Thieves' Guild mostly for the past few sessions, so making them just see Agarand at a distance, hearing him talk, makes them remember really who they're fighting. I didn't really mention this in the previous campaign planning episode, but I was thinking about what would happen if and when the heroes eventually become so troublesome that Agarand decides to commit his resources to find them and stop them. Right now, they're nothing to him. They, they're not even on his radar, hardly at all. Well, until, until basically the end of that fight, right? Until, until they took part in that attack. So if I'm thinking that Agarand will eventually deploy his resources to find them, I have to determine what his resources are. What resources would be realistic to somebody who is the ruler of an entire kingdom? Of course, every tyrant needs a master spy or a master assassin, right? And the best choice for this, maybe not the best choice, but certainly my favorite choice is to use a doppelganger. So I had said that uh, Agarin mentioned the name Mago, and that Mago would find out who attacked the, the caravan. So Mago is Agarin's master spy, a doppelganger, uh, which is a great choice to infiltrate uh, enemy groups. I've used doppelgangers in games before. They're always a lot of fun. If you haven't used them, Dungeon Masters, in your own games, oh, please do. They're so much fun. I'd already written down a few notes in terms of character traits for this uh, Master Spy. I thought it would be neat that he is overconfident because he's so good at his job and that he's never failed Agaran before. This might lead him to situations to be overconfident, but I want to make this guy kind of dangerous. And if the players do their homework and maybe find out a bit about him, they can potentially take advantage of his character flaw, being that he's overconfident. Maybe they can lure him into a trap of their own. I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but I do have a bit of a plan on, in terms of how to use him. At the end of the encounter in episode 6, there were several members of Thorne's crew who were beaten but not killed. And Owen and Thorne both were no longer members of the Thieves' Guild. So right away, we have some opportunities for a master spy to get information about the people that are working against Agarand. If the doppelganger is able to interrogate, or really if anyone is able to interrogate Thorne's crew, they'll probably give the name of Owen the Quick. And then if they get a hold of Owen, then Owen, you know, he's not a tough guy, so he'll probably end up giving the identities of the heroes to to the bad guys. And don't forget, he also knows that the heroes are with Elwyn the Weaver, and that's that's kind of a big thing. We'll see how that plays out. I'm going to keep that in my back pocket. Needless to say, if Agran were to find out that Elwyn is still in the city, and he finds out that these upstart heroes are are protecting him, yeah, he's going to take notice of that. Then they'll be on his radar. Maybe the player's first confrontation with Agarand is not too far in the distance. I do want to be careful, though, in terms of when they will actually fight, because, and I know if you've Dungeon Mastered a game before, you probably know this already, once you put a villain in front of the players, chances are violence is going to happen, and chances are players will end up killing him. It's kind of how it goes. So 
one of the few lessons in these campaign planning episodes, if you're going to put any sort of antagonist or villain in the path of your player characters, be prepared to lose that villain. But in the meantime, I can have this doppelganger hound them as they go about their business, and the fact that one of Agaran's lackeys is attacking them, it'll pretty much make it seem like Agaran himself is attacking them. So it'll it'll sort of keep Agaran and Arizax as the threats in their minds, even though they're dealing just with one of his subordinates. All right, so now that we've talked about all the various things that have happened recently, let's talk a bit more in detail about what to do next. At the end of episode 6, Elwyn gave the players the list of things that they would need to get to build his device to find Kalira and bring her back. They could go after a few things in whatever order that they wanted, but they did tell me after we were done playing that they wanted to go underground to find the gems to copy out the rune inscriptions. So our next chapter of the campaign is going to be going underground. So when planning really any part of your D&D game, you want to have things that every player can do. Maybe not all at the same time, but you want everybody to get a chance to feel useful at some point. So I wrote out a few ideas of the various things that the players might encounter underground, and which of those might appeal to the different players more. Uh, so the first thing that I thought of, uh, something that I like to do most, is starting at the end and working my way backwards. The players have to find a buried pillar. They have to copy out rune inscriptions on a gem. Now, of course, there's going to be some sort of protections on there, so after making a few quick ideas of what those uh, hazards might be, I thought it would be kind of neat if there was a large, cumbersome, but dangerous Iron Guardian prototype still lurking in the underground, protecting those pillars, making sure nothing comes to find it. Another thing that's already been mentioned is the fact that there are these monsters underground and occasionally they try to make it to the surface. And there is a faction that stays underground, also mentioned earlier, the Fathom's Fighters. Not only do they safeguard the passages to the ruins beneath Pharaoh's Point, but they fight back any monsters or weird creatures that might try to make it to the surface. So right off the bat, we have something that appeals to Vanna Whitehousing. Being a monster slayer ranger, her character wants to protect civilization from the dangers posed by monsters and other bizarre creatures. So that's one. And you know what? It's kind of easy, but you know what? We're still at low level. So plus Kitty really likes killing stuff. So, you know, that's an easy one. Maybe it will be one very strong, very dangerous monster. Maybe it will be something gross, like a swarm. Anyways, you let me know what you think is cool. So not only will the players potentially be contending with this Iron Guardian prototype, but a very nasty monster of some variety. And to involve Spruce, here's what I had thought. And I don't know if this had actually made it into one of the other episodes or if I had edited this part out. Because there's a lot of editing out that I do because, like any D&D group, we go on a lot of useless and inappropriate tangents. But it was said that members of the Fathomless Fighters typically come from the Warriors Alliance. And Spruce Lee, the monk played by Matt, is a member of the Warriors Alliance. So I thought a good way to hook him would be to have somebody that he knew in the Warriors Alliance 
joining the Fathoms Fighters. And that can be really the way that they find their way underground is 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 by finding this person because the Fathoms Fighters really don't want to be found and they don't want people going looking for them. They don't want anyone going underground at all. It would be too easy for the players to be able to just go and talk to this non-player character, find out where the secret passages are, where they can go uh, underground, talk to the Fathoms Fighters, get intel on how to get even lower into the ruins. I guess they'd have to convince them to let them by first, of course. So I don't want to make it super easy for them like that. So Spruce Lee and the other players will need to go to the Warriors Alliance training grounds where Spruce's friend is or was. Maybe he's still in the Alliance and on his way to join the Fathoms Fighters. Or maybe he's already joined the Fathoms Fighters and is no longer there. But either way, they're going to have to make their way to the training grounds. I keep making a list of things that Agarand would do. And what would you do if you were a powerful warlord who suddenly had an army of disposable mechanized soldiers ready at your command? Would you just let an organized group of trained fighters do their thing in a city that you're trying to control? Probably not. So Spruce Lee is going to try to go find his, his buddy to get intel on how to get to the underground. But Agaran doesn't really want these trained warriors just roaming around, being able to do whatever they want. So he's going to allocate enough Iron Guardians basically to blockade these guys in to their training grounds, basically imprisoning them. I don't really know how the players will approach this problem. And again, this is something that I don't have to know. This is a problem that the players will be clever enough to solve, I think. Also, journeying underground is a great, great opportunity to use traps. Oh, I love a good old-fashioned dungeon crawl with lots of traps. Something that I've found is that you shouldn't make every trap exceedingly difficult. If you're going to give the players a few difficult, like really difficult traps, give them a few easy ones that they can disarm and feel like they've accomplished something too. So as they go into the underground, I'm going to use some good old-fashioned pit traps, some net traps, some trip wires. I'll even throw in some animal encounters there going underground. Yeah, you're probably going to run into some giant spiders, which are gross, but fun. And then I'll probably do one trap uh, more complex, following some of the guidelines from Xanathar's Guide to Everything. I thought of maybe a circular room, one door in, one door out. The doors will close once the players are in. Uh, I'm always fond of lightning orbs. So a lightning orb will descend from the ceiling. These are just some ideas that I've sketched out before. And it has two attacks basically on initiative count 20 and another one on initiative count 10. One of them will be sort of a, a sheet lightning attack that, that will hit everyone but will do less damage. And the other one will be more of a focused lightning bolt that will do more damage, but target potentially just one. But I don't want to target just one. So I thought, why not put a few mirrors around the room? You know, everyone gets super suspicious when you throw some mirrors in there. Are they magic mirrors? Are they doorways? Portals of some kind? No, basically they're going to be reflective surfaces. The lightning bolt will cause a dexterity saving throw. If one player succeeds... It will reflect off one surface and go after another player. And if that player succeeds, it will reflect off another surface and so on. But how do the players get out of this room? 
I'm going to make the exit super obvious, but very unappealing. I thought it would be neat to have a a grate in the floor, like an iron grate that they can pull up with one or two athletics checks, and they can just drop down into some water and swim underneath the room, you know, a short distance, and make it out to the other side. But the Fathom's fighters, you know, this is their trap. They're trying to incapacitate intruders, right? So they don't want people just swimming out if it's that easy. So they're going to put an illusion in there, make it look like there's some tentacles of some threatening monster. That is always something, too, to keep in mind when you're making traps in someone's lair, is that the people or person who travels through there frequently, they have to have some kind of way to get through there easily as well, right? So whether it's people in the Fathoms Fighters having sort of magically attuned uh, bracelets that don't trigger the traps, or that they know how the traps function and can therefore bypass them easily, you know, something to keep in mind is that if, if it's going to trap the players, the trap would also have to have an equal chance to affect really anyone else. And if it doesn't, then there has to be some kind of explanation as to why. Obviously, if it's just a tripwire, then anyone can just walk over it if they know that they're there. But if it's a choke point, like this trap room that I'm talking about, then the Fathoms Fighters would have some method of just walking through it without having to get electrocuted every time. All right, now going back to talking about ways to hook in the other players, let's talk about our gnomish friend Gilladob Fabblestabble. Part of Gilladob's backstory is that he's from the Underdark, of course. He is a deep gnome, so naturally comes from the Underdark. Uh, this may not have come up yet in anything that Tom has said, but uh, Gilladob can't really find his way home. And that was a part of his character backstory that, uh, that I really didn't coach him on. He said that after the war, there's so much damage and chaos that the tunnels leading to the Underdark had all collapsed, and he wasn't able to find his way back to the Underdark. This is something that ties in really perfectly with the interplanar barrier, right? It could be that he can't find his way back to the Underdark because of this thing. So what I could do, and I think what I will do, is give him maybe the opportunity to go home. Now, I really don't think that Tom, the player, is going to just take this opportunity to exit the campaign altogether, but it will provide some interesting roleplay opportunity. Like if Gilladob stays, you know, he has to really know why is he staying. But how am I going to give this opportunity? Well, I'd already said that there are plunderers, treasure seekers, adventurers that try to slip past the Fathoms fighters, go into the ruins because people are enticed by the unknown. Maybe they think they're going to find treasure or or ancient magical artifacts. So at some point in their journey underground, probably after they get past the Fathoms fighters, the players will come across another group of travelers also making their way to the ruins. And maybe one is another deep gnome. Maybe one is a drow, you know, something from the Underdark. And if I wanted to, I could have these adventurers in the service of Agarand. I've already said that Agarand really wants to find his way to the ruins. He wants to explore them. And it seems almost certain that he knows about the interplanar barrier and that's what he is after. So if he's sending down his own little teams of of spies and explorers, then maybe one of them will say, hey, you know what, if we find this thing, little gnome, if we find these pillars, we can just go home. You know, we can we can let the surface world deal with surface problems and we can go back to the Underdark. 
This means, of course, the other team would be after the pillars and that the players would have to stand by and allow them to sabotage the pillars to bring down the interplanar barrier. But it would provide a brief but interesting dilemma for Gilladob to decide whether he wants to commit to his life on the surface or go back to the safety of the Underdark. There are a few other ideas that I have with regards to other factions besides the Fathoms Fighters that the players may come across while they're underground. I think what I'll do is I will not talk about those in this episode, but I wanted to do another episode just talking about all the factions that I've told the players exist in Pharaoh's Point. Before we started the game, I gave them a little handout with the history, all about the War of Ashes, all about the different factions. I think there's 10 or 12 factions. Some of them I've planned out more details than others. Others are just maybe like a name and sort of what the faction does with no real details because I haven't really decided whether or not that faction will be of any consequence. But yeah, we'll do an episode exclusively on the different factions and how I think maybe they might come into play. All right, and our last player to think about is Fiance. Now, Candace has given me kind of a an interesting challenge here with a character that does not believe that she has anywhere to grow. I think as things progress, she will have to realize how dangerous things are and how important the notion of self-sacrifice really is. Now, I can't really force character change on anyone, nor should I. But I should certainly introduce the possibility and let the players explore that if they want. In terms of Faye, uh, Faye is very combat-averse. So I, I thought, after drawing out some ideas, there has to be more that I can put in front of her other than combat for her to realize that you know the heroic impulse is, is something that can awaken in her. And what better way to entice that character than with a fancy magical item. Uh, I thought, uh, you know, they're soon going to be getting to a level where they're going to get magic items, and I thought it might be useful to give Faye a magic lute or other instrument of some kind. But I want it to do something special, and this will serve more than one purpose. I want the lute to be able to cast the spell Warding Bond. Now, this is a cleric spell, and this spell protects an ally but it redirects damage onto the caster. So Faye would, if she chooses to use this particular function of the loot, would be willingly taking damage and injury on behalf of someone else, which is, I think, goes to the core of the heroic impulse, right? This also serves another purpose. The party does not have a cleric. They have some healing spells, but I think based on the challenges that they're going to come up against, they're going to need a little bit more. So the loot will do some other things, but it will cast the cleric spell Warding Bond maybe once a day. Probably just once a day. We'll see. All right, I think that just about does it for what I wanted to talk about today. I hope you found some of this useful and or entertaining, one or the other. Hopefully at least one, preferably both. Let me know what you think. Get in touch with us and me on Facebook. We are Knights and Nerds Podcast. Join our Dungeon Masters only group so we can talk about all the nasty stuff that we can throw at the players while they're underground. We're on Instagram at Twitter, at Knights and Nerds. And if you prefer email, it is Knights and Nerds Podcast at gmail.com. Also, if you want to support the podcast in some way, consider leaving a review. It's a big help. Consider telling your friends about this podcast if they like D&D and they like listening to people talk. 
tell them about this show. And of course, if you want to, you can go to thingstimwrote.com slash books. If you're enjoying these episodes, you might also enjoy the fantasy books that I've written. There's a trilogy so far. I'm working on a new book. I'm almost done editing it. You can ask me about that if you want. I love talking about stories that I'm working on. But the ebooks that I have out right now are fairly inexpensive, and they're also pretty good. So check them out. So thanks again very much for listening, and now we're going to let the outro music take it away, because it's all so epic, like dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun.